On this episode of the London Lyceum, Brandon and I talk with Dr. Neil Shenvey about apologetics. I think this is a really fun episode for, for multiple reasons. I think it's really practical for those who are interested in the topic of apologetics. Neil gives us a lot of great tools and tips on just how to think apologetically, uh, how to not, I guess, ca- get caught off guard or be overwhelmed uh, by the potential topic itself. I think he's, he's really helpful in just thinking through the basics of what exactly apologetics is, and he gives a really good framework. Uh, for the whole discussion. So I think whether you're just a regular church member, whether you're a pastor, or or whether whether you're an analytic theologian somewhere out there, I think you're really going to enjoy the the episode. I think it's refreshingly clear, refreshingly helpful, and and Dr. Shenvey does a really good job of walking us through uh, several ways to think about it and several, uh, I guess, ways for Christianity to to talk with skeptics or atheists. So I I think it's a lot of fun. I think you're really going to enjoy the episode. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum, where we hope to encourage our listeners to think deeply and clearly. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your other host, Brandon Askew. And today we are interviewing uh, a triangle guest. Uh, since we live in Wake Forest and he lives over in Durham, uh, I guess he's kind of, you know, we're, we're somewhat friends geographically. Uh, Dr. Neil Shenvey on uh, not critical theory, but on atheism and apologetics and Christianity. So I think this topic is very interesting, and I think he's well-suited to talk about it. Um, for whatever reason, critical theory stuff has taken off and gone everywhere, but I, I'm just honestly not that interested in it personally. It seems more of just a, uh, I don't know, more of a tribal battle than anything at this point. So I'm interested in talking about other things personally, um, but I'm really ex- interested to hear from Dr. Shenvey on, on these things, considering his background. So for those who may not be familiar with you, Dr. Shenvey, uh, we've got a lot of different listeners on here. Some people will be familiar with who you are. There are other people like, you know, I think of my wife who listens, she's going to have no idea who you are. Um, so can you give us a little background on, I guess, just maybe you can talk about your family or, or your education, those types of things. So our listeners can have a little bit of context for you. Sure. So I grew up in Delaware on the East Coast, and I have great parents, but uh, they're not Christians. And so I was raised kind of more or less a secular humanist, although I kind of believed in God. It was a very wishy-washy, non-traditional, spiritual, not religious kind of God. I went to school at Princeton uh, and met my future wife, Christina, and she was a missionary kid. And we actually began dating which is a bad idea. I was caution people not to do that. <laughs> but what we intended for evil, God intended for good. So I became a Christian during our first month or two in grad school at UC Berkeley. And we got married a year later. And it was around that time that I began really engaging in apologetics around then, and then into my postdoc at Yale. So we've been to Yale for uh, her medical school, and now we live in Durham, where I homeschool our four kids. That's awesome. So I'm assuming your wife had a significant influence in you becoming a Christian? Yeah, definitely. So I'd say that just knowing her and seeing how different she was than many of the other very high-achieving, very intelligent people at, at places like Princeton really had an impact on me, that she was both very uh, normal and funny and obviously brilliant, but but also that she didn't seem nearly as uptight about um, 
proving herself as I knew I did. I, I had a real need to be the best at everything. And she, she was the best at everything, but she didn't need to be. Um, I really, I, I, I intuited that. I, I could sense that. And so knowing her was big for me. And then I also read a ton of C.S. Lewis as a non-Christian. And that was very important for me in terms of giving me, I think C.S. Lewis actually talked about sort of a baptized imagination. I don't know if I'd put it that way, but I sensed in Lewis a, a real understanding of my psychology. He understood what temptation was, what good and evil were, and I couldn't figure out why. And so it was really appealing to me that how does he, he's a Christian. I can't, I'm not a Christian. I realized that after knowing Christina. But he has an insight into my spiritual life that is astounding. Where does it come from? And it made much more sense when I became a Christian and said, oh, he, there's spiritual reality and he's experiencing it. And he can, that, that's why he can convey these ideas to me. So I, I'm curious at that point, two things. Number one, how did you stumble upon Lewis as a non-Christian and start reading him? And number two, were you hostile to Christianity at all before you became a Christian? I wasn't hostile. Um, like I said, I would have called myself a Christian probably in my early years of college because I, you know, I'm in the U.S. and everybody's a Christian. I believe in God, and so I must be a Christian. And I'd read the Bible, kind of skimmed it all the way through to say that I'd read it because I wanted to be the best at everything. <laughs> and uh, so, but actually, I remember it was our freshman or sophomore year. Um, Campus Crusade back then, or Crew now, was handing out free books. And they were uh, Mere Christianity, the Screwtape Letters, and the Bible. And I was like, you kidding me? Free books? And so I grabbed the two C.S. Lewis books because I was like, oh, he wrote Chronicles of Narnia. And I was like, yeah, keep your Bible. I don't want your Bible. <laughs> but it's funny because I'm sure the students manning the booth would have thought, oh, my gosh, this guy just took our free books and left. They'll never see him again. And they didn't. But I read the Screwtape Letters like 20 times. And so it was really powerful to me and as a non-Christian. And so, you know, I always tell people, don't underestimate the power of one conversation, one book, one properly placed word um, that can have a big impact down the road. Mm. So so now that you're converted, you know, and, you, and you've met your wife, what is it that that starts like sparks your interest in in becoming an apologist? And, and maybe while you're at it, um, can you just take a couple moments to define what apologetics is for our listeners? Because there may be a few who are not familiar with uh, apologetics at all. So apologetics is giving a reasoned defense of the Christian faith using logic and evidence argumentation. And I became interested in apologetics pretty early on in Berkeley. Um, I had never studied apologetics. I kind of knew, I knew that Jesus was a historical figure. I'd taken a, a course on New Testament studies at Princeton as a non-Christian. So I knew that basically the, the Gospels were not, they were, weren't taught as scripture or inerrant at all. But I knew that Jesus existed. <laughs> that he, There's a guy named Jesus who had disciples and taught things and died on the cross. I, I at least wasn't, you know, a mythicist. Um, and and it, but it was completely secular, of course. We used Bart Ehrman's textbook in the course. It was, the professor was John Gager. Um, we, we were taught um, a lecture, a guest lecture by Elaine Pagels. Remember that. At the time, I didn't know who she was, but she's a huge scholar on the Gnostic Gospels. Anyway, uh, I read Dominic Crossan's book on, on one of his historical Jesus books. Anyway, um, I had that background, but then at Berkeley, I forget exactly how, but I began spending a little bit of time with the, um, the Free Thinkers Society on Berkeley's campus and got to know the president. And I remember 
talking to him about why he was not a Christian or didn't believe in God. And he said something like, you know, if I could just have this one miracle, if I knew there was one ironclad miracle, I would believe in God. And I had, again, no experience at all with Christ, with apologetics, anything. I sort of sat there and I thought, huh, like, you know, so you're saying like one time when the all laws of nature and physics just completely broke down and we give no explanation for it. And it's like, yeah, 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 just one. I think it's one, yeah, one. So like, well, what about the Big Bang? The universe had a beginning. Scientists believe it happened at the Big Bang and all the laws just broke down. We don't know what caused it, where it came from. No idea. It's a miracle, right? And he goes, huh. <laughs> and, I, and I remember thinking, wait, it's that easy? Like, I, this, was, this was off the cuff. I wasn't planning this. I didn't trick him in. No, this is just off the cuff. And I thought, huh, that's interesting. If only there were people who dedicated their, not lives, but their free time to providing non-Christians with answers like these. That was sort of the back of my mind. And then when I went to Yale as a postdoc, uh, a friend of mine from high school introduced me to his friend who was an atheist, and he said, oh, you're a Christian? Oh, he'll talk you out of all of that. So I went onto his blog, and we had this long discussion about atheism and Christianity. And through that discussion, we were both completely unprepared to have it. <laughs> he didn't know anything. But I realized, man, I think it's possible to defend the Christian faith. I think these, these things are true, and what's more, they're not just true. They're, they're defensively true. They're, 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 I think you can make a great case that they are not just, again, not just true, but reasonable and rational, and you ought to believe them. So that was my, the beginning of my interest in apologetics. So do you have a, there are a number of different apologetic methods, you know, you have presuppositional apologetics and, and classical or evidential apologetics. Do you have a particular method that um, is your favorite, or are you kind of a mixture of, of both, or how do you approach that? Yeah, I take a pretty... Um, I'm going to say balanced, uh, eclectic approach. I, maybe that's a better word for it. I probably would come across as a classical apologist, but I do, uh, which means I just appeal to people's reason, objective evidence, mm -hmm. classical arguments for God's existence, the resurrection, the reliability of the Bible. But at the same time, I have, because of my theology, I have a lot of sympathy for presuppositionalism. Uh, I would call myself maybe a soft presuppositionalist, meaning mm -hmm. that I think I depend very heavily on certain fundamental beliefs, and I think we all do, we all have certain fundamental assumptions about reality, and that uh, I think, and this is probably something that all evangelical apologists would agree on, is that we don't convert people through good arguments. We just don't. Um, God has to, to convert them and change their hearts. Not that the arguments don't do anything. They are often a means, like in my case, God used C.S. Lewis in my life, uh, to change me. So God uses our arguments as means, but at the at the bottom, at the base of our foundational belief structure are certain core truths that I think have to be imparted by God. Not because they're unreasonable, but again, this goes into my theology, because we are so set on rebellion that God has to just break up our foundations. And that's why I would say I'm a soft suppositionalist. To hear me talk, you wouldn't Say, so, oh, I'm not going to ask you, you know, by what standard do you believe these things? And <laughs> over and over. For, can, yeah, when I would, I'm not going to ask you for conditions for, you know, what's it, why, why is your worldview intelligible over and over again? I'm not going to do that. I mean, I'm not knocking that. I'm just saying that's not where I would start. And to be fair, a lot of presuppositionalists wouldn't start there either. Yeah. But underneath my 
talking about evidence, underneath my talking about arguments, I would always have an eye to the gospel. Because the gospel, the message of Jesus coming to die for our sins and rise from the dead, that's the message God uses to change hearts. And so we have to have our eyes, not just eyes on that, we have, I, for one, want to make sure that I explicitly state the gospel whenever I talk to anyone. Because mm-hmm. that's what they need to hear most of all. Yeah. So I'm curious about your own journey in, in apologetics. Did you like start where you're at now? Because uh, I know when I think about apologetics in my own background, I think I'm probably more classical-ish, very vaguely when I'm early on. And then I become this hardcore presuppositionalist. And then I kind of like back away from that mm-hmm. uh, slowly. So is this where you've always been? Or did you have some sort of like evolution and, and belief on that front? I mean, I didn't really get interested in apologetics you know, spent a lot of time on it until, I guess, Yale. So that would have been, oh man, 15, 14 years ago. And I think one of the books that was one of the first ones I read to give me an apologetics framework was John Frame's Apologetics to the Glory of God. And I think he also doesn't come across as really a hard-nosed presuppositionalist. He is, but he's not like, when you read his book, he's not like this, no, I don't know. Uh, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. And, and, but I think that was really, um, for me, is helpful because I realized this is a, a theological discipline, right? Apologetics is not independent of theology. It's part of it, and it's part of glorifying God. And so we do things. Um, it's not a game. It's not like a, a way to trick people or to convert them. But it's also something that you do to, to honor God. And that's why you should, it, your apologetics could, you should be driven by your theology. Um, and then, but yeah, I, but I think I began, of course, like in grad school with The Case for Christ and Mere Christianity and a few other books. And I, I really loved uh, Tim Keller's Reason for God. It's a great, mm-hmm. great book. And also, uh, yeah, so, but yeah, I mean, it's been, what, 15? I've been a Christian for 18 or so years, I guess. And so it's been, a, like everything else, it's a, it's a long process. Yeah. So you mentioned C.S. Lewis and and John Frame and Tim Keller, do you have any other apologetic role models or, or men or women that you've, you've drawn heavily upon in, in your apologetics? I mean, it's going to sound funny, but I would say that my favorite apologist is Charles Spurgeon. Mm-hmm. And it's for the reason I mentioned. It's because, is he apologist? No, absolutely not. <laughs> you know, he, he, he almost scoffed at defending the Bible uh, and, and said, I'm not going to even bother doing it. Why should I I'll preach the Bible? I'm not going to defend it. But I think that, I, but I appreciate that because, as I said, I think what people need is is the gospel, and uh, you, you can you can give them great arguments and good arguments that I believe in are sound. But if you don't have the gospel there, what that's that's what's going to really change their hearts. Um, and so, of course, he's not an apologist in the typical sense, but I think God used him to to bring the gospel to so many people, and. And I also appreciate uh, the, the fact that there are two tasks of the apologist, which is one, obviously, to talk to non-Christians about the gospel and to give them evidence and reasons to be a Christian. But then the second task is to um, give Christians confidence that what they believe is true. Mm-hmm. And so it's both of those. Um, and I don't think we have to, they're not at odds at all. That makes sense. So... I guess thinking more specifically as far as atheism and Christianity go, I imagine at least in my, you know, little evangelical imagination, um, 
when it comes to being a high powered scientist and in, in those types of areas and fields and studies, it seems like there are a lot more atheists than other areas, or at least strong willed atheists anyway. Uh, you know, they, they want scientific evidence for everything and Christianity. Well, it just doesn't have the scientific evidence that, that they want. So are there any primary atheistic charges against Christianity that you, you, I guess, encountered among others that you've been working with or, or just in general that you would say these are the three big ones? Well, so to go back to a second, I, I actually wouldn't say that in my experience, scientists are the most um, and, uh, opposed to Christianity. In fact, in my field of theoretical chemistry, uh, there were a lot of not just Christians, but evangelical Christians. So it's funny, in my lab at Yale, uh, one of our deacons was in my lab in, our, in my church, Southern Baptist Church in New Haven, Connecticut. Um, another guy had gone to my church back in Berkeley and then has, and moved to Yale. A postdoc who came later was a Christian, went to a Presbyterian church in town. And then when I moved into my new office, I opened up the drawers like, to clean them out, and there was a, a stack of sermon CDs from the last postdoc. And so I, I don't know what percentage it was, but some some large fraction of the lab mm. were not just Christian, but evangelical Christians. Mm. And that was my experience. So at Berkeley, in our uh, graduate fellowship, by far, it was dominated by science people, chemists, physicists, mathematicians. And, and then in my experience, talking to other grad students, the other departments in the humanities were far more antithetical to Christianity than the sciences. Especially for me, like theoretical chemistry, as C.S. Lewis himself says, modern physics has has accustomed people to thinking about things they cannot see, realities they cannot see and touch and observe. So in that sense, I think modern sciences, as opposed to like Victorian science, is much more open to things like the miraculous and the inscrutable and the, the hard to figure out. I think a lot of atheists are sort of stuck in this, you know, forgive me, this sort of 19th century model of Victorian science, like these balls and sticks bouncing around. I'm like, guys, you know, we've kind of moved on. Um, and so, yeah, I, so that was not a huge, um, that was not a huge obstacle for me as a culture of the sciences, at least in my field. And I think it's, worse in, it's harder in biology because of evolution, but in physics and chemistry and engineering, I think it's, it's much less of an issue. Oh, sorry, but you were asking, well, what are the sort of three big atheistic objections to Christianity? Oh, it doesn't have to be three, but I, I okay. just, you know. Uh, well, I guess, so when I was thinking about this, what's interesting is that I honestly couldn't think of uh, a good objection um, in terms of pure atheism. So in other words, when I think of objections that I encounter and I encountered that were the most forceful, they were mainly objections, not even to Christianity per se, but to the, the Bible, biblical Christianity. Um, so the, the idea that, you know, some, some kind of supernatural being exists, I think it's very hard. I think you can make a pretty solid case that, yeah, this is a, a very bare minimum, a very reasonable view to have. Um, it, when it, you know, and for many reasons I can go into, but the, the more challenging objections relate to things like, uh, you know, evolution versus creation, um, things like the problem of evil, things like uh, why is God hidden? Why doesn't he give us more evidence? And then uh, and then I guess a biblical inerrancy, you know, can we trust the entire Bible from you know, Genesis to Revelation? Is it all true? 
And so if I, you know, if I were an atheist and I wanted to challenge a Christian, I, I wouldn't argue that God doesn't exist. I, I would go first to like, and, and this is the crazy thing. You know, I would, I would, I, you know, I've studied this as an apologist. So if, you know, you're like, okay, well, I, I would challenge biblical inerrancy first. And I wouldn't go and be like, well, Jesus didn't exist. That's, that's, you know, that's, that's Bush League stuff. I'd be like, you know, did Jesus, did or did not Jesus command the disciples to bring a staff with them? Because Luke mm-hmm. says he did, but Matthew says he didn't. And the funny thing is, and I keep telling, I always tell Christians this, don't get caught up in the weeds. I mean, if I were an atheist, I would do that. But as a Christian, I'm like, that's a complete smokescreen. I mean, mm-hmm. because that's uh, obviously, I, I'm, I'm an inerrantist. Obviously, it matters the Bible is inerrant. It's, it's inspired. It's authoritative. I believe that. It's very important. But the first question the atheist needs to confront is, did Jesus exist? Are you a sinner? And do you need a rescue? Those are the questions. And, and, and you know, and, and is he God's son? Things like that. Did he rise from the dead? We can get to inerrancy. We, we should get to inerrancy later. But I, I, if, I, if I were to have encounter an atheist raising these objections about things like, you know, what about this verse or that verse or even larger questions like uh, even like what about evolution? What about um, what about the exodus? Did the exodus really happen? Again, all important questions. I wouldn't ignore those, but you have to push them to start with the main question. Did Jesus claim to be God? Was he God? Did he rise from the dead? And then work from there. Mm-hmm. Oh, just, go, yeah, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to, um, I think that's a really good point about not getting, you know, stuck in the weeds, but are, are you familiar with Greg Kokel's um, book, uh, Tactics? You know, I have not read it. I was, he, he interviewed me last week about critical theory. And I, I recommend that book because I've heard such good things about it. And I've heard it summarized, but I've never read it. Okay, I was just curious because I, I I recommended that book to you know the folks at our church because um, I think it is really helpful. But uh, Jordan, were you about to say something else? No, I mean, I guess I'm just thinking. You know, your average church member, you're you're giving these good advice for them as far as you know, don't get bogged down in the weeds. How does your typical church member get, I guess, apologetically prepared? Uh, I know sometimes they can see a lot of the apologetic stuff that's out there, and it might seem overwhelming. Uh, It might seem like you have to be a trained theologian of some sort to really engage in a lot of these things, and they might be a little bit fearful for, for other reasons. And maybe there's pastors who are listening, I know there are, who think, what is, how do I get my church members to be thinking in these mindsets and to be actually utilizing the resources that are out there? I, I would start with good theology. If you have a really solid theological base of saying, what do I believe? And and, all, and this is a, a figure I use. I think I got it from Rob Bowman, who's an apologist that I've met a bunch of times. I forget where he, where he is now. Um, but he used an illustration of a pyramid. And so at the very bottom of the pyramid, there are foundational components of your Christian belief, foundational worldview beliefs, things like Jesus is God. God exists. Jesus is God's son. You know, I am a sinner and I need to rescue. Those kind of beliefs are like the foundational beliefs. And this is where I would sort of, my, my presuppositionalist leanings would show. I'd say those are going to be fundamental. I would deny, okay, well, properly basic beliefs. Those are things that I can't get underneath. Mm-hmm. I can't get underneath the idea that I'm a sinner. I just can't. I know myself too well. And if you have a worldview that says you're not really that bad, 
I'm like, I'm sorry. I'm, world game over. Like, I really am that bad. And then if you have a worldview that says you can fix yourself, okay, granted, you have some flaws, but you can fix it. You can do it. I would say, again, game over. I cannot live that way. I, I know too much of how deeply I struggle with sin. And so that's not going to apply. And then other things like, well, God exists. There must be some transcendent standard. Why do I feel guilty? Why do I have this shame? Why do I know certain things are bad and evil? And I'm part of I'm on the wrong side. Well, there must be a right side. And so those kind of basic beliefs. And then you think, well, well then what about what, what religion offers rescue? Well, only one, right? Only other religions say, you know, you can kind of give you a boost or but only one religion says you need to be rescued by grace. Nothing of your own, no merit, nothing in your hands you bring. You have to cling to someone else to rescue you. Again, that's basically Christianity. And so that's the foundation. So you have this, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, but that's the foundation. On top of that, we tend to say, okay, well, if I'm a Christian, because what, you know, once you believe, if you believe that Jesus is God's son, that he died for your sins, that he rose from the dead, right? To save you. If you try and trust in him, you're a believer now. If you, if you truly trusted in Jesus' salvation, well, but then you're like, okay, now, now I'm going to follow Jesus now. What's the first thing I notice? I remember when I was a, you know, a young Christian, I was just reading the Bible for the first time. So I was reading New Testament. I'm like, oh, yeah, this is okay. Some of it sounds familiar. And then I began reading the Old Testament. I said, wait a minute. This is he's just like plagiarizing. Jesus is, is just – he's just repeating what was said in the Old Testament, only you know, bringing things out, making it clear. But so that realization made me think, wow, okay, the Bible's pretty darn important, right? It fits together. And there's, a, there's obviously lots to go into here. But that second tier maybe would be things like, well, what is the Bible exactly? What kind of authority does it have to have? How does it have to, how do I have to relate to it as a follower of Jesus? That next level would be things like biblical authority, biblical inspiration, biblical or inerrancy, right? Uh, it's, it's trustworthy. I can follow it. Then on top of that foundation, you build the next layer would be things like doctrines. What do I believe about God's sovereignty? What do I believe about um, uh, the, the nature of, uh, you know, ethics? Like ethics, you know, ethics, but God's sovereignty. What are what are some other classic topics? Um, the nature of the church. Uh, you know, basic theology. Do I need to go to church? Yes, you do. Okay, so <laughs> get that all in there. And then on top of that, you build ethics. What? How do? How should I live my life? What does it mean to follow Jesus in how I relate to money, to sex, to power, to whatever you want to talk about? And then up here, you have other things. Okay, they're up there. Things like eschatology. How is the world going to end? You know, when is Jesus going to come back? Things like that. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, up here, you got some really, some very questionable, not questionable, but things that are clearly secondary or tertiary issues. So have people understand the pyramid, what goes down here, what goes here, what goes up here. And the key is this, make sure they're not going to invert it. Mm -hmm. Now, why is that important for apologetics? Well, number one, if I were an atheist again, where would I start? The debate. I started up here. I'd be like, "What do you believe about Revelation 19? Like, what do you, you know, what do you believe?" I'd start up here, and or I'd ask questions about like, "Well, is the state of Israel the same as the Israel in the Bible?" I don't know. I'd pick something really, you know, really debated, and attack that. Whereas 
so and then you don't want Christians to, like, to, to take the bait in a sense and start arguing up here, argue down here. And then secondly, I, I have met you know former Christians, former pressing Christians who have lost their faith because they had inverted the pyramid. And I had one guy who was a former conservative Christian who then now is like a progressive Christian. And I was, ask, I was asking him, well, why do you think the Bible is not inerrant? And they said he had, he had two objections. And I remember one of them, I forget the first one, but the second one, he had two shots. And the second objection he made was, Jesus says that the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds. <laughs> And it's not. The orchid seed is actually the smallest of all seeds. And I'm thinking you had, two, you know, given two chances, two questions you have that would disprove inerrancy. I don't, the first one I think was, I don't remember what it was, but it was, okay, it's whatever it was. But the mustard seed, I mean, really? <laughs> and what had happened there was clearly he had gotten totally, maybe he'd never understood what his faith is resting on. Yeah. It's resting on who Jesus is. And from there we get to the Bible, and from there we get to everything else. Um, so again, first start with just a Christian who understands theology and has good theology, and then the, uh, and understands where his beliefs fit into this noetic structure. That's start with that. Yeah. The second thing I would do is then once you do that, once you begin to realize that Christianity is a coherent and true and defensible worldview, you cannot freak out so much. So I think a lot of what worries Christians is that because they're not prepared, fine, they're not prepared. I wasn't prepared either, you know, and I'm not prepared now for many questions. But because they feel unprepared factually, they worry their faith is going to crumble. So they're, they're hesitant to talk about anything because what if the atheist asks me a question I don't understand, I can't answer, and then everything falls apart. But once you realize that, well, look, the core foundations of your faith, things like Jesus existed, Jesus died on the cross, and then things like there's evidence for the resurrection, um, God exists, things like that. That's the foundation. You are a sinner. Jesus came to save you. If that foundation is there and everything else is built on it, you can kind of be less worried that some errant question from the atheist is going to just shatter your faith. Because, again, there, I'm not saying it never happens. People get challenged, and I get challenged occasionally with questions that are hard. But the building blocks are always there. You know, it, it's very – like I said, these are foundational things. How do you talk me out of the fact that I'm a sinner? It would be like talking me out of the idea that logic exists or that you know, <laughs> the universe exists. I, I, I said this before. I am more confident that I am a moral failure than I am confident that I'm not a brain in a vat. Mm -hmm. I could be a brain in a vat. Feeling shame and guilt because my thoughts are wicked, right? I might be, but I'm not. I'm not a real person who who lives in a non-moral universe. Mm -hmm. There is a moral universe. I don't know if it's a vat or I don't know if it's the earth, but I. So I'm more confident that I live in a moral universe than of anything else. Yeah, yeah I, th I think your point about not making you know making sure that that pyramid doesn't get inverted is, is so important. And the other thing that you said about you know, yes, maybe sometimes you are going to get really challenging, challenging questions, but more oftentimes than not, you're, you're going to get a lot of the same questions. So actually recently at our church, the leader of our men's ministry, he asked me to, you know, come and talk about apologetics, um, to, to the men. And basically, you know, I gave a little talk and then I told them, I said, you know, you're going to have to do a little bit of preparation, but I gave them tactics by Kokel and the reason for God, 
by Keller. And I said, if you know these two books and you're able to navigate the conversation and know these big, you know, high level issues that Keller goes through and the reason for God, you're going to be able to have a conversation about 90% of the things yes. yep. that a skeptic will ask you. And cause I think people, you know, uh, the average church member sometimes thinks, you know, well, I'm going to sit down on the airplane next to the, the PhD who has all these questions I can't answer. And, you know, well, yeah, there is a chance that could happen, but more oftentimes than not, you know, you're going to get the same questions over and over. So if you do know a book like the reason for God, along with all your other theology and everything that you're getting from church, but you know, I think you'll be, you'll be equipped, but um, I wanted to move into kind of the flip side of the the question that, that Jordan asked you earlier, but about what the, the primary challenges to Christianity are, what would you say are the the primary challenges to, to atheism and, and what are their potential responses to those challenges? So the one argument that, um, that I think is really good and it's, there are a couple that I, I say I've developed them, but I, I, um, I do, I have thought about them carefully and I haven't really seen them articulated that often. And but I think they're very powerful. The first one, um, you're all familiar with the moral argument, I'm sure. The moral argument says that if God does not exist, then objective moral facts do not exist. But objective moral facts do exist. Things like murder is wrong objectively. And for those facts to exist, God must exist, right? If there's no God, then everything's permissible. Murder is just – you might li not like it. You might hate murder personally, but there's no objective standard that says moral murder is wrong and thou shalt not murder. Well – you can modify that argument just a little bit to make it actually even more powerful. The argument is this. If God is not – if sorry, if a truth-loving God, if a certain kind of God, a truth-loving God does not exist, then you have no moral obligation to seek the truth. But you do have a moral obligation to seek the truth. Therefore, a truth-loving God must exist. Now, what do, you, what do I mean by that? If an atheist came to me and said, you ought to be an atheist. I say, why? They say, because atheism is true. I say, so what? They say, well, you know, you, you what? They say, you ought to believe true things. I say, why should I? Says who? Now, they have two choices. They can say, well, it's just my hobby. My hobby is believing true things. <laughs> and I say, well, my hobby is not believing. My hobby is being happy. And frankly, <laughs> I like being a Christian. And so unless you convince me that being a Christian is going to make me less happy than being an atheist, I'm going to be a Christian. They'd be like, that's horrifying. Well, no, wait, why? Now, if you want to come here and tell me that, no, I am obligated, whether I want to or not, to seek to know the truth about atheism, that's fine. Go ahead and make your case. But you can't come to me and, or, and, and order me and say I ought to put down your Bible and start reading Richard Dawkins. Why should I do that? Dawkins seems like a – I don't know. I don't want to read him. So now they're in a, they're in a, they have a conundrum here. They can either say, well, that's right. Objective moral facts, including the command thou shalt seek the truth, don't exist. So do what you want. They can do that, but then they've undermined their own proselytization. Mm -hmm. They can't proselytize me. They can't say you ought to believe the truth. Or they can say, no, you do have an obligation to, to seek the truth. Now, wait a minute here. I'd say, well, why? Now, a lot of utilitarians, so some atheists, will say, well, what is moral, what you ought to do is seek the greatest flourishing for the greatest number of people. I said, now, now, they could say that. That's how they get around the moral argument. But here's my counterargument. How do you know that atheism will maximize human flourishing for the most number of people? Because, in fact, I look around at atheism in, in, the, in the world when, when governments and nations adopt atheism officially, 
it's a disaster. I mean, just historically, maybe it's a coincidence. I don't know. But I'm just saying, you look at explicitly atheist regimes, they're pretty miserable place officially, right? Um, and more than that, again, personally, well, how do you know that just psychologically, the average person, you know, the average peasant out there doesn't actually get more happiness from believing God exists? For example, I could say, I bet you that if the average person truly believed that when they die, they go to pie heaven. It's either be pie all eternity. If the average person truly believed that, they'd be happier. Yeah, I could die of COVID, but I'll, get, I'll go to pie heaven. Now, that belief would actually increase human flourishing. But you're telling me, oh, but don't, don't tell people that because it's not true. Now, wait a minute. If you're arguing that what we ought to do is promote human flourishing, it's our ultimate good, then why shouldn't I go around telling people about pie heaven? Or, or pick your other religion, pick your happy religion. <clears throat> so they're really stuck here. So I've actually posed that question to a lot of atheists. Why should I believe the truth? And they're pretty much split. Either they will say, well, you're right. I, I shouldn't, you know, you don't have to believe the truth. Do what you want. Well, then they, ha- they, can't, they can't tell me I ought to be anything. <laughs> or they'll say, well, um, you should promote human flourishing. But then they're left trying to make a very, actually, frankly, very mercenary case for atheism. Because they're not now arguing that it's true. They're now arguing it'll make me happy. And they, they, get, they feel dirty, and rightly so, when they start doing that. They don't want to make the case that it, it'll make you happier. It'll make you a better salsa dancer. It'll make you more handsome. And, and you know, No, they want to argue it's true. Why? The answer is because God has put a love of truth into the human heart. We are designed to love truth, and God commands us to seek it. So – on a Christian worldview, we can explain why I can go to an atheist and say, you ought to believe Christianity whether you like it or not. Why? Because it's true. And you have an obligation from God to seek the truth of Christianity. But an atheist can't turn that around. And the funny thing is, for Christians who are struggling with their faith, I just ask them, why do you care whether it's true? Why do you care? Right? If there's no God, and I can understand, if they said, well, what if Islam is true? Or what if what if some other religion is true? Now that I can understand, mm-hmm. but but usually they're coming to me saying, well, how do I know that that God even exists? And I say, well, if he doesn't exist, why do you care? Say, well, I care, I care. I say exactly, exactly. Now, which worldview can explain why not only you do care, but why you ought to care? Christianity. Mm-hmm. So that's a for me, that's a really great, strong argument. Another one, <clears throat> the other one I alluded to earlier. It's just the argument, I call the argument from the gospel, basically saying that um, if I have a worldview that gets two deep existential truths uniquely right, then that worldview is probably true, right? I mean, even or one or two or whatever you want to have, but you know, if some worldview gets, gets some truth that uniquely true, in other words, other worldviews, other religions, they all say other things, but one worldview is uniquely saying these things and those things are true. That worldview is likely to be true, right? What are, the, what are the chances that some random worldview gets that? So the analogy I make is imagine I'm playing basketball. pick up basketball. I suddenly collapse, and people gather around me. One guy says, you need a – oh, you sprained your ankle. I saw it happen. You need, a ba- you need a bandage. Another person says, no, you need some Advil. Another person says, no, you need – I'll help you walk it off. And they kind of are arguing. Then a woman rushes over and says, no, no, I saw it happen. I'm a doctor. We need to get you to a hospital right away. Your life is in danger. And the crowd looks at her. She's like, you're a crazy lady. You're overreacting. Give me a break. Are you really a doctor? And she looks at me and she says, I'm going to tell you two things. You can't feel your legs and you can't move. 
And everyone's like, give me a break. It's so melodramatic. You know, what a drama queen. And I say, take me to the hospital right now. And everyone looks at me and says, wait, 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 what? You believe this lady? She's a, she's a crazy lady. Now, why would I be justified in believing her diagnosis? Well, I know two things. I can't feel my legs and I can't move. Now, everybody else didn't know that. Everybody else was saying, oh, it's fine. Walk it off. But only I knew that she had unique insight that no one else had. The chances are what? That she's a doctor. That she has some mm-hmm. this insight comes from the fact that she is aware of some real objective transcendent reality that no one else was aware of. And this is, so what are the two truths of Christianity? Truth number one, I'm a sinner. I am a moral failure. Deeply, deeply, deeply. I'm radically, not just like, oh, super, oh, you're pretty, you're mostly good. You know, like you're 99% good, but 1%, you know, bad mix. And I'm like 100% bad with a, you know, a little sprinkle of like hypocrisy on top. <laughs> you know, that's number one. And you say, oh, that sounds, I don't believe that. Well, yeah, because if you believe that, you'd be a Christian. Right? Why? Because number two, only Christianity says that God loves people like you. God loves really bad people. And God sent Jesus not to give you a boost, not to pat you on the back, not to give you like over the over the hump, but to live the life you ought to have lived and did not, and to die in your place to rescue you. And no other religion I've looked, I would for I was writing a book on apologetics and I looked briefly into other religions. I mean not extensively, but I read multiple books written by Jewish people, Muslims, by Hindus, by Buddhists, and Eventually, I even found a guy who's an agnostic, who's a professor of religion, uh, uh, Stephen Prothero, whose book, God is Not One, he says, and he's not a Christian, but he says, Christianity is the only religion that offers salvation, hmm. meaning rescue. No other religion does. If you think that you're a sinner, Christianity is the only religion for you. And this is not a Christian apologist talking. He's just saying as a professor of religion, that's unique about them. It's not, they're not better or worse. They're just different. And so – I'd say if you know at a deep existential level that you are rotten that you, and that you can't fix yourself, then Christianity – and Christianity is the only game in town. Christianity is the only religion out there claiming those things are true about you. How did it know? How did Christianity know that? Well, chances are Christianity is true. That's why it knew, and it, it, it uniquely knew so, that's, so those are the two sort of arguments that I think are most powerful in terms of convincing both, I think, both atheists and also encouraging Christians that, yeah, there's something deeply true about Christianity. Yeah, that's good stuff. So for those who want to learn more, I know you've mentioned a couple resources already, like C.S. Lewis, um, Tim Keller. Uh, are there primary resources you typically recommend to others to to grab, to learn more, to educate themselves? Um, yeah, I think Reason for God, I think, is the book, book I would recommend. Um, I think that C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters would be a good place to start. Um, or maybe Mere Christianity, too, but I really like Screwtape Letters. Um, in terms of other books, it depends what you want to, to learn about. Um, let me think about this. I mean, I think The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel is a good, just very beginner, basic, accessible um uh, introduction to New Testament issues. Um, uh, I, I'll plug just again a theology book, but uh, Charles Spurgeon's All of Grace is a, just a great book for understanding the gospel. And so I would, I would just read that. 
no matter what, <laughs> wherever, whatever you're interested in. Um, and like I said, I think that uh, the funny thing about that argument from the gospel, the idea that you're a sinner and needs a savior, I framed it in terms of showing that Christianity is true. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also does a lot more, more than that. It also shows that Christians around the world and throughout history are justified in believing that Christianity is true. Because not all Christians have access to the argument from fine-tuning or the moral argument or mm-hmm. evidence for the resurrection. But every Christian of the world over throughout history knows two things, that they're a sinner who needs a savior. Mm-hmm. So that argument, I go into this in more detail elsewhere, but the point is that not only do all Christians um, can be reassured in their faith by that argument, but it actually it's the one they implicitly rely on. If you ask a brand new believer— why did you become a Christian? They will say, I realized I was a sinner who needed a savior. And I've never heard that message anywhere else. Well, of course you haven't. It isn't anywhere else. So I think, it is a, again, that does a lot of work. And, and so when the, the, more you, the more you invest in just that, those basic theological concepts, you're doing the work of apologetics in your own heart because you're cementing the basic core of the gospel that you need to do everything else. Awesome. So for those who uh, want to follow more of your work or maybe read on the stuff that you've been posting, um, what are the primary places for them to go to follow you? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm active there a lot. And unfortunately I do not get to speak about apologetics proper <laughs> as much as I would like to, because you'll find out soon enough that I, I spend a lot of time talking about something called critical theory, <laughs> but apologetics proper is is what i really enjoy the most <laughs> this is kind of done of necessity anyway so on twitter i'm neil.shenby no no neil neil shenby neil shenby at neil shenby my twitter handle and then my uh my website can be found just by googling neil shenby n-e-i-l space s-h-e-n-v-i and even any variant on that will find my website it's a pretty unusual name so yeah neil shenby and you'll find my website and i have lots of material on there talks links to podcasts, recording videos, et cetera. Awesome. So we definitely recommend our listeners to check both those places out, especially your website. Um, I, I know, at least for me, I, I often get turned off by people on social media and their interactions with others, but you're one of the few people that I've actually really appreciated uh, and seen there's a certain level of charity and patience and restraint that I've really appreciated and respected. Yeah. Uh, so I just want to plug your stuff and tell those who are listening, go check it out. I think not only is it content wise, helpful and good, um, but the way you approach things I think is, is also good, which for, unfortunately it seems that a lot of times it's one side is missing. Uh, but I think you do both really well. So we want to say thanks for joining the show. Um, if there's anything else you want to share before, before we sign off, you, you've got the last word. Uh, no, I think that's it. I mean, if you're listening to this and you are uh, an atheist or an agnostic or you're not sure what you believe about Christianity, I would just, again, repeat that last the little last part of my uh, the interview, which is that the, the core of Christianity at the heart of it is this message that you are, as Tim Keller says, you know, more uh, messed up and wicked and evil than you ever imagined and you're more loved than you ever hoped. At the same time. And and how is that possible? It's because God sent Jesus to rescue people like us. And so Christianity really offers you a way to avoid the extremes we see everywhere else of 
um, arrogance and feeling like you're better than other people, but also in the extreme of just licentiousness and thinking, well, I'll do whatever I want then because everything is permitted. Christianity gives you this desire to actually, and, and it, it, it provides the power and the motivation to live a life that is loving and humble and good. Um, and it doesn't come from us. We don't work it up in ourselves. You know, God rescues bad people and he, and he only rescues bad people because there only, they're only are bad people. That's awesome. Fantastic. Well, thanks uh, again, Dr. Shenby, for joining us. Uh, I think this is really beneficial stuff, and I think a lot of people will really be helped by it. So thanks for taking the time to talk with us. And for those who've been listening, you, you've you been listening to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast that exists. And we thanks, thank you for tuning in. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.